green is a, a term that I think we may need to look at again and say it's lost all meaning because of politics. It's not green. It's not. It, it's electricity. I don't know what that's kind of an arcing bluish purple color. Not green. It tastes the same as coal power. It tastes the same as wind power. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. I'll close the wall up with our English dead. Welcome back to a second hour of the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and... Jeff. McClure. In a little bit of a pause there. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake. That's Jeff. We're both bald. He's got a, a white beard and I have a black beard with speckled salt all through it. Uh, so that's a good way to tell us apart on the air. You should be more careful when you eat. Yes, the salt is getting on there. This podcast is called The Personal Wealth Coach, and that's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. Now, the fact that it's registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC approves or disapproves of anything, nor the, neither does the secretary, whoever the secretary is. And this tape will destruct after it's listened to. You the, just dated yourself. This tape will destruct. Your podcast tape is about to self-destruct. That's why you can't find the tape in it anymore. <laughs> it already has self-destructed because it's too old. Right. And uh, the information that we do present in this podcast, we get from sources we think are very reliable, but we don't make any guarantees as to the completeness or the accuracy of that reliability or anything else. We just do the best we can. The information that we're providing during this podcast is not considered investment advice. This information is educational because investment advice means that we know exactly who's listening and we can custom tailor all of our advice to them. So prepare to be educated. So last hour, we talked about some things and we kind of skirted around the edges of some logistical stuff that Hopefully, you're of the same mind as me in that we should talk about infrastructure. It's been a good infrastructure week in Texas, or a bad one. Well, it's a it's been it's been kind of rough. Uh, we've allowed infrastructure to get underinvested in Texas, and it's it's an extreme of free market. Yeah, we've had a situation where in Texas we've gone we've deregulated the. Uh, the generating the power generating market to the point where it's it's competition on price and unfortunately when you compete purely on price cutting corners on maintenance and winterization and things like that becomes very profitable another thing that's very important is through the rest of the country the utilities are required to maintain a 15 percent reserve throughout the other the other two grids across the country so that whatever they think the maximum power requirement they're going to have to meet is they have to have 15% more power than that. And that's to allow for plants to go down and unexpected things to happen. And unfortunately, uh, it didn't work. We didn't have the 15% reserve. Uh, we, matter of fact, it was a warning last summer, and I remember it pretty clearly. Mm -hmm. During the heat, we had rolling brownouts across the state because we didn't have quite enough power to power all the air conditioners in the state. And it was articles at the time that said, what happens if we get a really cold winter? So it happened. Right. And here's the issue, I think, so that it's not just this the political debate, uh, debate about regulation or deregulation. Let's kind of approach this in a very common sense fashion. 
How many electricity lines go to your house? Mine only has one. Right. I think that's pretty common, wouldn't you say? I think it's fairly common. It's very much, it's much more efficient that way. Who owns that line? Encore. All right. In, in Salado, in, in a big chunk of Central Texas, Encore owns the line. They are paid to fix brakes. They are not paid for electricity transmission in the same way that the others. They've, they've got a, an, a delivery fee that you'll see on your, your bill. And if it's not Encore, it's another company in Texas. And there's a lot of companies that do this. They own the lines. How did they get these lines? Where, how did these lines get put in? I mean, the lines that come to my house are actually on my property and on my neighbor's property. How can they, if they own the lines, what are they doing on my property? And the answer to that is that the government said they could own property on my property. The government said we're going to do this through the same method that we use for roadways and a lot of other things. It's eminent domain. It's in the public interest to have electricity lines going through there. And there are people in charge of keeping those lines running. There's no incentive for them to weatherproof. In fact, we've deregulated so much that we've missed a part that there's one part we cannot deregulate. And that's the eminent domain. It's still a wire that comes on private property. And someone has to physically fix that line or upgrade that line, it is not in any way incentivized for a company that's providing the power to pay extra money to upgrade in case of an emergency. They're not out of uh, payment if the power goes down. Encore suffers. The, the deregulation had a piece of logic in it, which seemed pretty good on the, f on the surface of it. The, the, the logic was that plants to keep from breaking down in high demand would recognize that there's a great deal of profit to be had when the most energy is in demand. The price goes up. So that should be an incentive to make sure that they have plants online when there is a high demand. The problem is that because everybody is competing hardcore with each other in Texas to get your business and my business the margins are pretty thin. The profit on this stuff is pretty thin. At some point, when there's fewer and fewer of these companies out there, because right now there's hundreds of them doing this, it doesn't take much to get started, but you're not in charge of upgrading or fixing the lines, or in a lot of cases, even the plants. The plants are owned by some other company than the company that's buying the energy from the plant and giving it to you through somebody else's line. How do you deregulate that? There's a bottom line piece that you can't deregulate, and that is that there's only one line to each house, and we really don't want to change that. I don't want 12 lines coming to my house just in case I have want to have a choice between 12 electricity companies. So how do we pay for the upkeep? How do we keep, how do we approach this? And that's that's where we've had some stumbling. We've also had the situation where there are only so many power plants and and you don't have uh, a lot of little power plants all over the place. So somebody is buying the power from the power plants and selling it to you and then paying rent on the Encore or whoever lines are running across. Now, two weeks ago, we had this conversation, exactly this conversation, including the eminent domain of electricity lines and the danger ahead for that, that we, in order to deregulate, you know, we've got, we've got one of the strongest 
electricity grids of the country. There's three grids, and we are the strongest as far as production, and quite often we're the ones that are exporting energy to everybody else. The other two grids are buying from us. But there was no incentive to protect, to to de-weatherize, to make sure that we don't actually freeze. It wasn't the demand that brought us down. It was things breaking that brought us down. And that's that's the key here is that we've got to figure out some way of paying for infrastructure when it's in the common interest. This is the one of the biggest premises in economics. And if you want to have some time driving yourself slightly nuts, look up the plight of the commons. When everyone owns something, they don't take as uh, great a care of it as if it's owned by just one or two people. There's another deregulation that fits into this and it was very significant in this power shortage that we just had. Not only were power plants going down and no longer functional because their water pipes froze like anybody else's because they weren't winterized, but there was a critical shortage of natural gas. That was the biggest single issue. Uh, Power plants could not operate at full power because there's a shortage of natural gas and we use a lot of natural gas in Texas to generate power because we have an abundance of natural gas. Why was there a shortage of natural gas? Because the lines froze up. The pumps failed. Uh, there's just then the the other thing is we pump the natural gas out of the ground. That's where we get most of it coming directly out of the ground. And in the process of producing natural gas, or for that matter, fracking uh, oil, you produce water, and the water freezes in the pipes, and you don't have any place to send the water at that point. Uh, we were just not prepared for the degree of cold that we got, and nobody had prepared for it. I suspect we will prepare for it in the future, and I suspect it will cause the price of electricity and the price of things to go up. That'll be a good thing. But as the people who got the lowest price electricity who hurt the most, you mentioned right. that people were paying six thousand are going to have six thousand dollar. There was one in an article, a seventeen thousand dollar electricity bill. There's a service called Gritty, which is like the most embracing of the deregulation of energy. Now, let's say something very clearly here. The cost of energy has come down, and for the most part, the quality has improved through deregulation. It's these big events like this that could cause real problems. So we don't want to have this massive backlash against the entire prospect of deregulation. It fixed something that was more broken, having little monopolies all over the state that uh, were extremely regulated but also able to charge pretty well what they wanted to charge— that wasn't efficient. And to go deregulation was great. Now we need to fix this next layer to say, all right, which parts of this do we need to layer in? What what part do we need to fix rather than scrapping? And this is what I hear on the Democrats. They say, just get rid of deregulation. That was the whole problem. I hear the Republicans saying it was green energy. So there's a lot of hoopla out there, but the preliminary data, and this is data directly from plants and directly from the grid, is that far more natural gas and coal plants failed than wind turbines. The wind turbines were actually producing higher than normal peak. So there's a lot of people that said, hey, wind turbines froze, and some of them did. But a lot more natural gas and coal plants froze up because they use water. They use water to turn the turbines. They heat that stuff up and turns into steam. That's a kind of magical reaction there. It causes the turbines to 
to spin in a circle, causing the magnets to run by around the copper, causing electricity to come out. Well, what are you going to do with that steam? Well, you put it in the pipes again to use it again. Well, that froze. There's no water steam being used in wind generation, but the wind turbines froze. (laughs) So it isn't a question, this goes back to that first hour, it isn't a question between green and not green. Most of the, quote, green power in Texas was funded by oil tycoons. T. Boone Pickens, I swapped his, uh, who died this last year, just may he rest in peace. Um, He spent a huge amount of money and was extremely profitable putting in these wind turbines. The technology is there. Now, the reality is that they're profitable even when they're not profitable because of subsidies. But they are profitable on their own feet as well. So it's even more profitable to have wind turbines. This isn't about green. It's about, hey, you don't have to buy wind. It's profitable. So to this is something I keep coming back to with people that are hidebound Democrats or hidebound Republicans. Stop referring to the political rhetoric of whether it's green or not, because that's arbitrary. Like we said, lithium is extremely dirty to mine, Uh, getting the iron that the the car is made out of. If you've got an electric car, you're only marginally greener than if you're not. This is a silly term for people to say uh, it's it's kind of a similar thing when they have the cartoons on the back of their pickup trucks about, you know, uh, urinating on the other brand of pickup whether it's Ford or Chevy or whatever, it's like, I like mine and so I don't like the other. The reality is that green, the most investment in green energy is being made by petroleum companies. Is So green is a, a term that I think we may need to look at again and say it's lost all meaning because of politics. It's not green. It's not, it, it's electricity. I don't know what, that's kind of an arcing bluish purple color, not green. It tastes the same as coal power, tastes the same as wind power. And if it's being pumped in or or wired into a business that's profitable because electricity prices are down, then this is a good thing. Now, if we have to increase the prices of electricity to get some infrastructure built here, it will save us a lot of money. A lot of grief in the future. Because if you think about the last week and how much business did not occur in Texas, the cost of that is just absolutely stupendously large compared to the price of weatherizing the pipes and a natural gas power station. So if the government needs to get involved to prevent that kind of an economic disaster when there's a freeze, then it should. As long as it doesn't get in so far, Texas has got a pretty good legislature when it comes to not over-regulating, but I hope they don't just give it a blanket pass. It wasn't their fault, whatever. It isn't about fault. It's about how do we make it better next time. I did some more research on John's question about home mortgage hack, and it really isn't the home mortgage hack that he's asking about here. He's asking about as a title fraud. Right. Uh, is it possible that somebody can fraudulently take your title which is recorded at the county and may run a mortgage against it. In other words, borrow money against your house. This is why mortgage companies require clear titles and proof of identification. But the point is it happens. It happens rarely, but it does happen. And the, the 
people who want to charge you money to protect you from it says they will said they will check your title regularly. They'll check your check your. It's basically a ID theft, identification theft, where somebody takes out a mortgage against your house. Now that's very 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 difficult to do. And the other thing is, it's very very easy to pre- to prove that you didn't do that. The the key to it, and by the way, the uh, the companies that say they'll protect you from it don't offer to pay legal fees to get it fixed if it breaks. They just um, inform you. So if you get a notification, for example, that your house has got a mortgage on it when it doesn't have a mortgage on it, or you've got a new mortgage where you didn't have a mortgage before or whatever, or you got a different mortgage, check immediately with the mortgage company and say, I didn't do that, and do it in writing, not only on the phone, but immediately do it in writing. The quicker you react to one of these things, the easier it is to fix. And by the way, there's no evidence that it's widespread. Uh, it did happen uh, a few years ago to a limited extent, but then people became aware of it. And again, in Texas, it's very difficult. Your title, by the way, you don't hold your title. You, we, we talk about legally you're holding your title. Your title is on file with the county. And if somebody can get to the county with a document that says you signed it saying you're taking out a mortgage and they get a mortgage company to accept that, which is very, very difficult to do because the mortgage company is left holding the bag because you're not required to make the payments. Wait a minute. Who? What's the bag? The, the yeah. title's in the bag? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Well, left holding the bag is like when there's a theft takes place and several people are involved in the theft and they hand the bag off to somebody as the police break in. Right. And holding the bag is the guy who's found guilty. I, I, I really did understand the, the turn of phrase. I, I was being facetious. Well, it's not the old bag, though. Not the old bag. It's not a carpet bag. Right. So the point is, there's a threat any time of identity theft, and you can pay for people to check a regular basis to see if somebody is stealing your identity. You're certainly welcome to do that. On the other hand, in order to get a mortgage, somebody has to notify you at the address where the, where the mortgage is being taken out, which is where you are. And if you ignore your mail and you ignore the fact that, uh, that somebody is obviously filing for a mortgage in your name, you... Um, could be in trouble. And what do you do if this happens? You contact an attorney quickly. Yeah. Um, and you also contact, if you've got a mortgage already, you contact a mortgage company because they have an incentive and they may hire an attorney. Uh, they, they have an incentive to get that fixed because you, you don't want two liens on the same property. Well, I dug around a little bit and you can't find it in a mortgage act. What you find it under is identity theft. And apparently what they do is they try to find somebody who doesn't check their mail an elderly person or an elderly couple who doesn't check their mail and doesn't respond to emails and basically has cut themselves off. And that way they can go through the process of applying for a mortgage in the name of this elderly couple or this elderly person. And I mean, it'll show up all over the place. You'll get notifications, lots of notifications in the mail that something is going on. But if you're in a position where you're not checking your mail, so if you've got elderly parents, for example, that own their house or an elderly parent that owns the house, it's probably a good idea to have their mail delivered to your house if they're not checking their mail so that you can check to see nothing, nothing amiss is happening. That absolutely is that's, I mean, there's a lot of hacks out there. It's more likely that you'll have somebody go and put a lien on your property than somehow steal your property and transfer the ownership and then get a mortgage on it. It's hard to do. It happens. The burden of proof is on the person who's taking out the mortgage or the person who is, uh, putting a lien on your property in the state of Texas so that if you, if you take them to court 
and you get a document from the court that's saying that's not real, and you take it to the county, they wipe the lien off of there. And if they borrowed money from a bank based on the lien, or they borrowed money bank from a bank based on your title and the mortgage, well, the bank is stuck with the with the bill. Right. Yeah. Not a big threat unless you never check your mail or email. Who do that though? I I have some relatively good news. the The Midwest is recovering. Uh, unemployment is dropping there relatively quickly. Uh, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, has had a massive jump back. Indianapolis, uh, Cincinnati, Minneapolis. Uh, they are, what's going on here? Well, number one, it's got a larger than normal concentration of what people used to call white collar. Although if you've looked around, most white collar professionals don't wear a, a white collar anymore. Uh, that's just side note. Uh, but that higher than normal concentration, that's the area of the economy that was hurt the least. So they're hiring back quickly. There's also a lot of firms in this area that the people that they're hiring to snap back are robot designers and robot technicians and uh, automation specialists and uh, plant line automation designers. And that's the sort of thing that's coming back at high speed. The Midwest is benefiting from it tremendously right now. They are they are not quite back to what they were pre-pandemic, but it's getting close. And that's a statement that goes directly to what we've talked about this entire downturn, this entire pandemic, is that when jobs come back, they're going to come back differently. Uh, if we had been able to, and let me kind of roll back, if we'd been able to stimulate the businesses that were failing, that had been profitable before, and I know people say, well, what about the paycheck protection? That That is not a business stimulus. That was keep paying employees when you're not making a profit. A lot of those businesses failed. They were going concerns, good businesses that failed not because of any fault of the owner of the business. They didn't have enough reserves to go 10 months without getting business. How many businesses do? So if, if we had stimulated them early enough to, to keep give them a lifeline so that they stayed around, hiring would come back relatively quickly. Our pandemic lasted longer than most people in charge thought would happen. They thought these businesses will be able to survive, but a lot of businesses are failed and they're not going to be there to continue ordering. They're not going to be there to, uh, to, to hire back the people that they laid off. So this is, comes back to where are they hiring? These are new businesses. A lot of these businesses in the Midwest are hiring those that did get laid off. Most of them are not getting hired back to the firms that laid them off. So there's a lot of really kind of juicy pieces in the numbers here saying we're having a shift in the job market that is much more permanent than what most people thought at the beginning of the pandemic. We thought, all right, you're going to get laid off when we got this under control. The people that laid you off are going to hire you back. That's not what we're seeing. And the, as this continues for longer, as you said in the newsletter, and I think it's pretty important to point out, we're nearly through the bad part. Uh, there's still going to be parts that are rough, but the the vaccine is out and people are getting it. I've gotten my second one. Jeff's gotten his second one. What that means is that, you know, we're not in a good example of the entire population. 
But as more people get the vaccine, we're going back to work. It's maybe not going to be the same place you were working before. It's going to be a different kind of job and a different kind of economy because we are looking at supply chain issues. We are looking at automation. How do we keep going when people have to be six feet apart to work on a factory? Well, you have them go and work on robots and the robots can be cheek by jowl if they had jowls or cheeks. That's just out there. That's a business idea for anybody that wants it. If you're into robots, you should start designing cheeks and jowls so they can be working cheek by jowl. That's oh, that was a that was that was that was not quite even a pun. That was more of a pu. Oh, it was bad. They dropped was, the n off the pun. Yeah, it was bad. Well, pu is generally following a bad smell. At any rate, um, <laughs> talking about the economy game just a second. We were talking about the fact. That, I was talking about the fact a little earlier that the market, the IHS market growth index, indicates we're getting really good growth in manufacturing. Don't misunderstand that. We're still, for instance, our manufacturing capability, capacity utilization in the United States. In other words, we're using, we has been as high as 85%. At 85%, we start to get bottlenecks someplace in the system. Right now, we're running about 75%, which is not anywhere near as good. We have a lot of room to grow in manufacturing in the United States. And we certainly know where, where we were, nowhere near where we were. As a matter of fact, uh, Final product manufacturing was up to a measured 100 at one point just before the pandemic hit. So we were sitting about 75, which puts us about 25% below where we were. We've got a lot of growth left to do in the in the economy, and manufacturing is one is the best part of the economy. Uh, we've you know, there's two ways of looking at that. Well, as is half empty, glass is half full. Actually, it's three quarters full, or three quarter, or one quarter empty. Um, and and it's good, very frankly, that we have a lot of capacity left in the manufacturing system, because that means we have a lot of room to grow before we hit a natural barrier when we simply don't have the capability of manufacturing more and we have to import more goods. Although we're certainly importing a lot of goods at this point. Um, so I just want to make something clear. And the clear part, the clear thing is that even though we've got really good growth going on in the manufacturing sector and in the servicing sector in the United States, that doesn't mean we've gotten back to where we were. Now, what's you want? You, you guys, you want to know the good news? Uh, yeah, let's hear some good news. The good news is that the there's evidence that the COVID pandemic may be declining. And I track my own numbers on this. Uh, I, I take new COVID cases per week because if you do it over a five-day period, it smooths out a lot of the bumps that occur on the weekends. Last week, we had 68,488 new COVID cases diagnosed in the United States. Now, that sounds like a lot of new disease in the United States until you realize that on January 6th, we had 272,000 occurring in a week. So what we're seeing is a dramatic reduction in the number of COVID cases diagnosed. And finally, we're getting the deaths down, which are a lagging indicator. It was at the beginning of the year, again, on January 6th, it was 4,200 a day dying in the United States officially. We're now down to 2,000, just under 2,500. Now, 2,500 a day is still a lot of people dying. And I think we've just crossed the 500,000 death level in the United States. But, that, but we're headed in the right direction. 
It's really important, though, that we get vaccination. You get vaccinated if you can, as soon as you can. Because the longer we go without vaccination, without killing this thing, the longer, the more likely we are to get variants that might get outside of the vaccination's capability. And directly from an economic position, the the sooner we get over this thing, the sooner we get back to producing again, to actually doing what we're famous for throughout the world, which is being the best producers of the things that we produce out there. Uh, if If we've got a political reluctance to even acknowledge that the pandemic exists or to say I'm not going to wear a mask or say I'm not going to get a shot, just know that you're long-term damaging the economy of the United States. It's, that is you know, a macro result for a very micro thing. Uh, do you mind if I change the subject a second? Go ahead. Um, another thing that is interesting, this is tax and policy stuff. Uh, so the president has been president for a little over a month now. President Biden, um, we haven't seen any of the tariffs go away. In fact, guidance coming from the Biden administration on the ones that he's covered so far is that don't expect them to change or go away anytime soon. Uh, The direct quote, the Biden administration says it won't be ending tariffs on imported European wine, cheese, and other food imports anytime soon. So this was it, this was part of the very earliest part of the last president's trade war, uh, putting in all these tariffs. And at the time that this occurred, we were saying that this seems like a very Democrat policy. Tariffs are very traditional Democrat attacks against certain types of business or, or locations. So it's not at all surprising to see Joe Biden come into office and not want to remove the tariffs. It's a form of tax revenue. Now, 80% of that is being borne by the the restaurants and the hotels in the United States, only about 20% from the European side. They've lowered their prices a little bit. The rest of it really has to be eaten, there's a pun in there somewhere, by the restaurants or maybe drunk by the restaurants or the uh, hotel. So there are a lot of restaurant owners that are talking to Congress right now saying, hey, these tariffs don't make any sense. Well, Congress can't take the tariff away. They may be able to change a law to remove the emergency power of the president to impose tariffs. But Congress isn't, they're not the right people to take tariffs away. It's just like you know, the Congress of the United States didn't impose the tariffs to begin with. The president of the United States imposed the tariff because of powers that were given to him by Congress. Um, and when we look at it today, it's the same thing. So the restaurant owners are going to Congress and saying, help us take the tariff away. Congress is going, oh, yeah, we're listening. They don't they can't do anything. So. What's the point of, of me bringing this all up? There were a lot of people that thought that at the end of the Trump presidency, that whoever came up next would just completely surrender uh, all of the, some of the points that, the, that President Trump made were extremely good, intellectual property issues and so on. I can't find any really good logical points for the tariffs on, on food and, and wine from Europe. Uh, but... This president doesn't need a good logical point for that either. It's more about, hey, we're going to charge more for that stuff. And it's good tax revenue. It actually does raise tax revenue. 
it was a trade-off. I mean, the fact that they're the world, the world court, not the world court, the, uh, anyway, in Belgium, wherever it is, uh, concluded, I don't remember which major organization concluded that now, but they concluded that, in fact, the Europeans were giving unfair subsidies to Airbus. Right. So, to make it affordable to buy an Airbus and to buy a Boeing jet. And, and that's true, but why not put tariffs on Airbus? Instead, we put it on cheese and wine and tobacco. Uh, the European Union hit back with tariffs on U.S. whiskey, nuts, and tobacco. So, and more sanctions were added on December 31st, just as a, as a side note. Um, almost all wine or imports from France and Germany have a 25% tariff on them. So if you're looking forward to having some good French wine after the pandemic's over, just expect it to be more expensive because there's a tax on it. And I know a lot of people look at tariffs and say this isn't a tax, but that's, t- that's absolutely technically in all ways of looking at it, it's a tax. It's a, it's a tax on the consumer, just like the sales tax is. It is who pays the sales tax? Well, some businesses will pay the sales tax for you by raising the price to the amount they would have to pay. So you still pay. You see where I'm going with this. It's a tax. And uh, when we had a Republican that was anti-tax and made his big push on getting rid of taxes and tax reform and then throwing some fairly arbitrary uh, taxes on the Europeans because of Boeing and Airbus. So Germany, Germany doesn't make Airbuses. Why are we taxing German wine and cheese? And it does. well, they, they do. It's mostly French. So it's a French company. They make well, them and it'd be like putting a tariff on Canada because Ford was being subsidized by the United States. There's Ford plants in Canada. They're made in Germany and France and England. The point is that we're putting tariffs on people that have absolutely nothing to do with the point of contention. Uh, and it may be a good lever. And at the time that the Trump admin- administration imposed the tariffs, I was hoping that this was part of a hardcore negotiation plan because he said repeatedly throughout his administration that the end goal was free trade. But he's left in his legacy anything but free trade. And that's a point that I think it's important to bring up and point out again that it's really hard to get rid of a tax once it's imposed. The government, for some reason, doesn't like to let those things go. And the fact that most of the American public wasn't even aware that a tariff was a tax let the government get away with imposing a great deal of taxation on businesses and on consumers. So that's my point. And the point is that no matter the president, they're going to have conflicts with their own rhetoric throughout their presidency. Uh, Joe Biden said during the uh, trade war that this was horrible, that we were destroying relationships with our key partners. But he just said, we're going to leave things status quo <laughs> just now. So that's, this is a, a political and policy statement. When we see a new tax come on anything, we just pretty much across the board make the decision that it's going to be there forever. Even if somebody says, this is temporary. What was the quote from Ronald Reagan? There's nothing more permanent than a temporary government tax hike. Something like that. Something like that. Well, you, you've been 
quiet for a while. Let's hand it back to you. Well, John sent us another question about inflation. Uh, there's been some discussion about the fact that inflation is going to go up, and it probably is short term. What causes inflation? Well, basically, inflation occurs when there's more money to buy things than there are things to buy. And so people start bidding the price up, the price of electricity. There was more money to buy electricity in the state of Texas recently than there was electricity to be sold. So the price of electricity went up to $6,000 per kilowatt hour, which is rather than $9 per kilowatt hour, but it amounted to a $6,000 bill. Oh, you've got, you've seen one where it's 6,000? Spot. On the spot market, it went up to $6,000 per kilowatt hour for a little while. And, and, And utilities were paying it. Now, they won't pass it on to the people that, that way, but that's the way they were paying it. And it's just like anything else. When there's a lot of money, something that people really want, and there's a lot of money to buy it with. Right. And, and he, he just sent in, and I always hear it's too much money chasing too few goods. It's exactly that. That is exactly what, what you're both now, saying the same thing. There's another way of looking at it from productivity um, that I think it's a little bit more sophisticated, but harder to understand because it's more sophisticated. And that is if you're creating something of value and it's the same thing of value that you were creating before and there's not additional demand for it and you get a raise because you've been at the plant longer. You're not making any more things than you did before, but you get a raise. That technically is a productivity shift downward. When you're not creating value equal to the pay, you get inflation. And this you can look back to the unions of the 1970s. There was too much money chasing too few goods because the unions had, as part of their contracts, locked in certain periods, you get a raise no matter what. And there were a lot of people in unions in the United States, a lot of them. Most pay scales were based on union scale. So, and there was nothing in the union contract that said, once you've achieved this level of productivity, you get a raise. No, it was after you've been working here for X amount of time, you get a raise. That leads to inflation, especially if uh, you've got a limited supply of automobiles being created in the world, as we did during that time period. The Japanese, the Germans, the uh, Koreans weren't producing anywhere near at the level that they are. We're going to get a short spike of inflation probably, but not a long-term spike. Remember I said a little earlier that we have about 75% capacity utilization in manufacturing, which means we can ramp up our manufacturing quite a lot, and that's where a lot of the inflation is taking place right now. The problem we're running into right now is logistics, and it has a lot to do with COVID. It has a lot to do with the winter storm, but we're having some problem with getting things from one place to another. So the cost of transportation is going up rather dramatically because there's a lot more goods and services trying to be transformed, transmitted around from one place to another than there are things to transmit them. Yeah, a big point there is the storage containers. There is a horrible, horrible lack of storage containers in China. That's where they need to come from, full of stuff. But there's a lot of empty ones in Africa and in other places that need to be sent to China. But who's going to do that? Nobody wants to go and bring back a bunch of empty containers. That's not very profitable. The other thing is this this is temporary. I mean, we've got plenty of slack in the economy. We've got plenty of capacity to expand the economy once the COVID virus is behind us. That's why it's so critical that we contain the spread of the virus by our personal actions, by social distancing and wearing masks and by getting vaccinated because once we get a healthy population and we no longer have to 
to deal with the fact that we've got a potentially deadly virus floating around out there, uh, we'll be able to produce a lot more and inflation will come back down. I don't think inflation is a serious long-term problem at all. I, I think uh, I think it could be a long-term problem if if we stop being afraid of it. And that tends to be what happens when we haven't had inflation for a while. If we continue to hold the same policies that we've had over the last several decades, I don't think long-term inflation is a problem at all. Uh, and that's really going to def- depend on the Fed. We've got some good folks at the Fed. Uh, President Trump nominated uh, Mr. Powell, and he's been making really good decisions at the Fed. I know a lot of times he didn't see eye to eye with the president, but he appointed him because he's good at what he does. And so as chair of the Fed, he's been making good decisions in this regard uh, and probably will continue to. As long as we have globalization, as long as we have the capacity to have our, our goods manufactured in low cost areas, which we need because we can't manufacture them here. Inflation should not be a problem. Now, right. long, long, long term down the road as standard of living rises and the cost of manufacturing and creating things rises in India and China and Vietnam and wherever we're having them made. If the slack's it, not taken up by automation. Then then there's the potential for inflation. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, if somebody tries to raise the prices on something right now, they can get away with it because you can't import things very easily right now. Once we get past the pandemic... They will be in competition with people in Vietnam and China and and India again. And I think at that point, we'll see the inflation go away. Right. So if you have a question you would like us to answer, the email addresses in here are jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie. And we'll be back on the other side of these, I'm sure, very important announcements. And we're back with more of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and... Jeff. McClure. We are the bald Avengers of the economy. Um, hoping, hoping to bring some rationality back into to economic... I don't know. I don't want to say the word politics. I don't think there's ever been rationality in economic politics. But... Uh, hoping to bring some rationality to the way people think about economics, uh, recognizing that infrastructure spending is very different than stimulus spending for the economy. It's a different kind of stimulus. When the, when the government gives stimulus checks, this is something that's pretty well recorded. This goes back, we, we did it under George W. Bush, we did it again under Barack Obama, and then again under, under Barack Obama. I'm sorry, it was two under George W. Bush, one under Barack Obama. Then we had the stimulus from the pandemic. What did we see that was consistent across this? Well, it didn't drastically stimulate things. A lot of that money was used to increase savings and pay down debt. So what stimulates the economy? When they're buying stuff, it stimulates the economy. So short term, it's necessary when the the economy is really sick from something that wasn't the economy's fault to give it in essence steroids that's what the stimulus is hey let's pay off some debts and let's kind of uh pay down our our debts put some more in savings maybe spend some money 
the long-term investment in the economy comes from the government investing in education and infrastructure, uh, and that the benefit of education will last somebody's entire life, hopefully. And the benefit of infrastructure will last the life expectancy of whatever the road or wire or dam or bridge that's being created. Alan sent us a question that has right to you. You may be referring to that question. As a matter of fact, when you talk about stimulus checks. No, I don't have his question. Oh, there it is. It's just come in. Uh, he wanted to know do you, do we, if we had mentioned the stimulus bill. We haven't mentioned the stimulus bill. We certainly hope it passes. Uh, the economy is still sick. Uh, the uh, back to normal index that Moody's CNN runs is puts us at about 81% of what we were before the pandemic. We have about 18 million people out of work that are seriously looking for work. We have people dropping out of the job market and the, we have an economy that runs about two thirds on consumer spending. We saw a jump in retail purchases in January because of the stimulus checks, the second round of stimulus checks going out. I'm not smart enough to know all the answers to this, but Janet Yellen is, and she says we need to go big on stimulus. Uh, the Federal Reserve says we need to go big on stimulus. Moody's, which really has done a wonderful job of figuring out what's going to happen next. Let, and let what me kind of... Already says we need to go big on stimulus. Yeah, let me live, give a parallel. If someone calls up in our normal calling in program or emails us and says, hey, is it a good idea to rack up my credit card debt while going out to eat? Most of the time we would say, nope, that's not a good idea. You're making a short consumption into longer term debt. That's a bad idea. You probably don't want to do that. However, if your house has no power and your pipes are frozen and you don't have savings, we think it's our right to get your credit card out to go get a hotel. Even though there's no way that you know of immediately that you will get this back, it is a an emergency situation that wasn't pre-planned for. If I could use another analogy, if you discover that your roof is leaking and you realize that you have the potential to get black mold if your roof is leaking and it's leaking down into your wall, you can have a choice. If you don't have reserves at the time to pay for it, and you need to borrow some money to get your roof fixed, it's a good idea to borrow some money to get your roof fixed. Why? Because otherwise you're going to get black mold and your house gradually deteriorate. And that's where the economy is right now. You could try it, to save up for it, but the whole time you're saving up, the, the bill is getting bigger because more damage is occurring. And we've got a lot of damage in the economy right now. And the longer people stay out of work, the harder it is for them to find a job and the harder it is to get things rolling again. And if we can get consumer spending, then people can get back to work. It's, it's kind of like the reason we didn't have a depression as a result of this pandemic was because we have unemployment insurance and we have Social Security. And we Those had are, stimulus checks that, that added to that as well. But the big thing is we have Social Security and, and unemployment, which we didn't have in 1929 and 1930. That is why we didn't have a depression in 2007. That's why we're not having a depression now. We're doing okay because the government is recognizing it's a lot less expensive to fix things before they blow up and turn terrible than it is to wait till after they turn terrible and try to do something about it. Determining how to pay for this would hopefully happen. You, this, you know, this is an old saying. It's everybody says it, but few people really understand it. In order to make money, you have to have money. 
in order to make a profit on tax revenue for the government, the government needs to invest in the tax revenue. It needs to build infrastructure that allows people to get to work and work at a capacity that's not limited by low budgets on the road. Uh, Work at a capacity that's not limited by inclement weather or by a pandemic. So is it possible to be prepared for every emergency? Absolutely not. But when they happen, we have some pretty well-established guidelines to get us through them that worked quite well in the past. The problem with things that work well is that when they're designed to prevent a catastrophe and then the catastrophe didn't happen because the plan worked well, people say, hey, you spent all this money and there wasn't even a catastrophe. I heard that a lot after Y2K. Look at all the money we spent on software renovation to make the Y2K bug in the year 2000. For those of you too young to remember this, this was early on in computers, we had two-digit year dates, and we changed to a different two digits in the year 2000. It's the next century, or at least the next couple of digits. And the computers didn't know how to deal with that. The social security computers would say, all right, you were born... Uh, 15 years from now, if you were born in 1915, uh, so you don't get Social Security, you're a negative 15 years old. Well, a lot of money was spent to get that fixed. And there really wasn't a big catastrophe because a lot of money was spent to get it fixed. So afterwards, a lot of people pointed at the over-expenditure of money because there wasn't even a catastrophe. And that's just something we have to be aware of when we're preparing for this stuff. And the chances of having another cold snap like this are pretty... They aren't low. They're going to have it's probably going to happen again. Whether or not you believe in it, I don't know. But climate change is a reality. Uh, and we're going to get more cold snaps. We're going to get more hot weather. And it's going to be more severe. And this is forecast in books that were written way back in the 20th century. It's just natural. We're going to have a century of unusually severe weather as far as extremes in heat and cold are concerned. And we might as well get used to it and be prepared for it. Uh, it sounds like we've gotten political. This We don't see any of the stuff that we're talking about, infrastructure spending or whether or not it's getting hotter or colder, is being political at all. If we can't adjust to the environment that we're in, then we're not going to be profitable, period, across the country or individually. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give fiduciary investment advice to people of high net worth. If you'd like to talk to us off the air, uh, you, there's a voicemail waiting during the weekend, real live people during the week, even during the, pa- the pandemic and even during the freeze, locally at 254-947-1111. Or you can reach that same line toll free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Or you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie. Uh, there you can listen to previously recorded radio programs. You can look at our podcast stuff and listen to it if you want. You can read our newsletter. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can put stuff in the contact form or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Thank you very much for listening this weekend and try to stay warm out there. Till next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.